started at Romans chapter 7. I think we'll read this at least one last time. Romans chapter 7 and beginning at verse 13. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death to me? May it never be. Rather it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. Sin is so bad that it can take something good and affect death through it. That through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. If I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. If I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, and here's the summary, so then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. On the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Amen. You may be seated. We're coming to the end now of our study of this final section of Romans 7. And we've seen that there are three basic views that uh, have been taught concerning this section in one form or another down through church history and are still being taught in our day. The first one is that this person being described here is a man who is under the law a man under intense conviction of sin, but a man who has not yet been converted. And that's the view that I have tried to convince you is the scriptural one. And then secondly, there's the view that Paul is speaking here of a Christian, just the opposite view, and not only a Christian, but a Christian at his best. In fact, even Paul himself at the time of writing. And then the third view is that Paul is speaking here of an immature Christian, uh, or as they would say, a carnal Christian, someone who has not yet passed into Romans 8, as they would say. Now, the reason they say it that way is because you've got to have some kind of rationale as to the flow here. Paul's been talking about the law. Why does he all of a sudden start talking about a carnal Christian? And so they say, well, it's someone who hasn't yet entered into Romans 8. And so these are the things that we've looked at, and in the course of studying these three views, we've faced a number of times this whole question of sin, and particularly of the Christian's relationship to sin. And these are some of the questions that have come up. Is a Christian sold into bondage to sin, as this man says that he is in verse 14? Is a Christian a wretched man? Um, does a Christian have an ongoing battle with sin? Does a Christian need to be consciously defeated by known sin, as this man is? Can a Christian live a life of victory? What do we mean by the term victory? Can a Christian live without sin? On the other hand, do Christians sin daily 
in thought, word, and deed? Well, those are some major questions. And obviously, our answers to those kinds of questions can greatly affect our whole Christian life, not to mention our interpretation and understanding of Romans 7. So before we leave this chapter, I want us to spend some time considering this whole matter of sin in the life of a believer. Sin in the life of a believer. And I want us to begin by considering a case in point, and this comes from the life story of Harry Ironside. Now, Harry Ironside lived from 1876 to 1951. And he began his life as a worker, his Christian life as a worker in the Salvation Army. And he attained the rank of captain. Uh, He had some people under him in authority. The Salvation Army worked in terms of right on up to the general, which was General Booth. Um, Spurgeon used to poke fun at the Salvation Army a little bit. He said they were plain soldier. And uh, to some degree, I think that was true. But but at any rate, uh, he began his life as a worker in the Salvation Army, and he ended up then finally with the Brethren movement, and uh, most of his life was spent with the Brethren. But uh, this is taken from his book, Holiness, False and True, and we'll take up his story shortly after his conversion. And this is Harry Ironside. He says, from this time, that is not too long after his conversion, I don't know if it was a few months or a year or two, but he says, from this time on, mine was an up and down experience, to use a term often heard in testimony meetings. I long for perfect victory over the lusts and desires of the flesh, yet I seem to have more trouble with evil thoughts and unholy propensities than I had ever known before. For a long time I kept these conflicts hidden and known only to God and to myself, but after some eight or ten months I became interested in what were called holiness meetings held weekly in the Salvation Army Hall and also in a mission I sometimes attended. At these gatherings, an experience was spoken of which I felt was just what I needed. It was described by various terms. The second blessing, sanctification, perfect love, higher life, cleansing from inbred sin, and by other expressions. This work has to do with sin, the root, as justification had to do with sins, the fruit, plural, sins. So this dealt with sin, the root. <clears throat> the steps leading up to this second blessing are, firstly, conviction as to the need of holiness. Just as in the beginning there was conviction of the need of salvation. Secondly, a full surrender to God or the laying of every hope, prospect, and possession on the altar of consecration. Thirdly, to claim in faith the incoming of the Holy Spirit as a refining fire to burn out all inbred sin, thus destroying in toto every lust and passion, leaving the soul perfect in love and as pure as unfallen Adam. This wonderful blessing received, great watchfulness is required, lest as the serpent beguiled Eve, he deceived the sanctified soul, and thus introduce again the same kind of an evil principle which called for such drastic action before. Now, um, the full testimony is quite a lot longer than this, and I had to cut it down. Uh, I wish that everybody could read the whole thing because it's very enlightening. But anyway, he says this, Such was the teaching, and coupled with it, were heartfelt testimonies of experiences so remarkable that I could not doubt their genuineness, nor that what others seemed to enjoy was likewise for me if I would fulfill the conditions. One lady told how for 40 years she had been kept from sin in thought, word, and deed. Her heart, she declared, was as holy as the courts of heaven since the blood of Christ had washed away the last remains of inbred sin. Now, what about this? It's a question I have for you. Here's a woman claiming that for 40 years 
She has been kept from sin in thought, word, and deed. And by the way, those such claims as that are not uncommon in those circles. Uh, some of you remember Jed Smock in the in the, one of his books, his wife uh, put the testimony in there that since they had been married in 1983, she had never seen Jed commit one sin. So that's I don't know if she'd still say that, but it's been about 20 some years now. Um, and I assume she would still say it. So what about this? Is it possible not to commit one sin in thought, word, or deed for 40 years? What do you think, Russell? (laughs) How long have you been married, Russell? Yeah, that's the acid test, isn't it? But, but sometimes your wife can be so brainwashed that she'll say some crazy thing. You know? <laughs> but is it possible? You say, how many would say yes? It's possible not to commit one sin in thought, word, or deed for forty years. Nobody. Okay, how about one year? Anybody think it's possible? About one day. Now I'm going to make this harder as we go along. <laughs> what do you think, Robert? Well, I think it is possible. It's, it's possible. Sin, but not very All right, po- Robert says possible but not probable. <laughs> <laughs> Joyce, what about it? Can you keep from sinning for one second? One second. <laughs> you think you can? <laughs> I I didn't hear. If you're asleep, <laughs> what if you're awake? Can you keep from sinning for one second when you're awake? Anybody think, what do you say? I mean, can't you keep from sinning for one second? I mean, that much time has passed since I asked you. (laughs) What's that? I'm sorry. All right, he proved that it was possible. He didn't sin at all. Okay, over here. Okay, so you could you say you can keep from sinning. It could be so theoretically. <clears throat> so would you say theoretically you could keep from sinning for one minute? Is it, would people agree with that? Okay, then theoretically you could keep from sinning for two minutes, and you could take it on out to forty years or the rest of your life. Now, what's the problem here? It's kind of like there's a, you know, there's this question, have you stopped beating your wife? And if you say no, you're in trouble because that implies that you're still beating your wife. And if you say yes, I've stopped beating my wife, you're in trouble because that means you've been beating your wife and now you quit. See, it's one of those trick questions. Now, what's wrong with this question? It's like we know there's something right about it and we know there's something wrong about it. What is it? Well, it's because the very way the question is worded presupposes an idea of sin, a definition of sin, that doesn't tell the whole story. Now listen to the way the question is worded. Can you keep from sinning for one minute? Now, if you say yes, then you can keep from sinning for two minutes, and it could go on indefinitely. But the idea, the way it's worded, can you keep from sinning, implies that sin, that this is what sin is. Sin is an action where you know that something's positively evil, and you 
volitionally take that action to commit that sin. And so when you say, can you keep from sinning, it means here's this evil that I'm tempted with, and I restrain myself from taking that action of doing that evil. You see that? And this is a certain idea of sin, and it's not at all the full idea of what sin is according to the Bible. Now let me talk about this more. Um, John Wesley, who was one of the founders of the modern-day teaching of Christian perfection or holiness, this holiness in quotes. And by the way, when you see holiness in the name of a church, like such and such holiness church, that this is what this is what it comes from. It's the idea of a second work type of sanctification. Um, John Wesley uh, was one of the founders of the modern day holiness movement. And this is the way he defined sin. He said, sin is a willful transgression of a known law. So here you are, you're faced with a temptation to do something that you know is evil. And you willfully choose to commit that sin. Now that's what he said, that's what sin is. Well, that is sin, but there's far more to the biblical concept of what sin is. Now let me give you some example. Um, suppose that I'm scheduled to preach at some big conference with a bunch of well-known preachers. I mean, they get my name on the list by accident. And I'm supposed to preach at this big conference, and I'm really nervous about that. Now let me ask you a question. Why, why would I be nervous about it? Come on now. What's that? You're worried about your performance. Now, what? why would I be worried about my performance? Pride. Is that sin? All right. Did I willfully choose to be nervous? It's not something that you willfully... He said, I'm going to be nervous. I know it's wrong to be nervous, but I'm going to be nervous. <laughs> That's not it at all. In fact, you don't want to be nervous. And you know it's wrong to be nervous. Well, just don't do it then. Just quit being nervous. See, sin is a deeper thing, a deeper problem, than a willful transgression of a known law. And it goes right down to things that you don't... I mean, they just pop out of you. And they're not actions exactly. You see, sin is much deeper than just an action that I willfully commit. And we could give a lot of examples of things like that where you realize you're falling short of what ought to be, but the way it's not something that is a willful action that you take to break a commandment of God. Now, the Bible says, in fact, in James 4.17, that to the one who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it's sin. So you picture this person, say, you know, can you keep from sinning for one hour? So he's sitting there gritting his teeth, I'm not going to sin. Well, during that time, he hadn't done anything good. And so he sinned in that. See, anything short of... Perfect Christ-likeness, in other words. And we talked a couple weeks ago about just in the area of prayer. Somebody can give a wonderful prayer that's fervent and real, but you can always say, look, that could have been more fervent. I mean, that wasn't the way Jesus... I mean, I've never, I've never heard a man pray exactly the way Jesus would have prayed with as much faith and as much zeal and as much life. See, we're all falling short in many ways of the perfect glory of God. Even our prayers need the blood of Christ to make them acceptable to God. In Romans 1.8, we saw this way back in chapter 1, Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. You can't even thank God except through Christ. You can only come... Even your thanksgivings fall so far short of... Perfect Christ likeness or perfect righteousness. 
Now, when you come to this question, then can you keep from sinning? For one minute, you could say, I can't even keep from sinning while I'm praying. I can't even keep from sinning in my best prayers. Not willful sin now. We've got to distinguish here because the Bible treats both of these things. Not willful sin, not even conscious sin. There's nothing at all that you're conscious of. Maybe you're pouring your heart out to God, but it's just falling short. There's such a thing as a sin of omission or missing the mark. Falling short of perfection. Now, the good works of Christians are good works. The Lord Jesus calls them that. He says in John 5, those who did the good deeds, they're they're good works. They're good in the sense that at the very core of them, they're good because they flow from a heart that has been made new. And they flow from a true love of God. But they're, they're good in their essence. I mean, they flow from something that's real. And that's a miracle. And that's what the Bible emphasizes. That there's something now, when you become a Christian, there's something good put in you. And there may be all kinds of imperfections. I've mentioned many times the thief on the cross that first prayer that he prayed had more true righteousness in it than all the prayers of all the scribes and Pharisees put together because there was something real and good at the core of it for the first time by the power of the Holy Spirit. But to say that it's good at the core and its basic essence is good does not mean that it's perfect. There's there's two different things. That's why this quote that we had from Bishop Berkeley A few weeks ago, uh, 1670, he says this, I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of. And the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. Nobody ever, you know, could rely upon even their repentance and say, my repentance was so good that God ought to forgive me. You see, there's not, never is there that type of idea of perfection. And all of these things, if something needs the blood of Christ, it's a sin. You see, that, that it's of the nature of sin. Now, that's one reason why the Bible talks about sins of ignorance. And this is an amazing thing. I'll just give you, I'll, I'll read some of these, I'll give you the passages. But Leviticus 5, 14 to 19 is one example. <clears throat> This is what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation in silver by shekels, in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. And he shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing, and shall add to it a fifth part of it, and give it to the priest. The priest shall then make atonement, see that word, atonement, for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it shall be forgiven him. Now we're talking about something where you sin unintentionally. You say, well, I didn't know, I didn't even know that was wrong. That wasn't a sin. Well, yes, it, that's, what, that's what God says. He sinned unintentionally. Now, if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock and so on. The priest shall make atonement for him. Uh, concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. And you say, how in the world does that work? Well, God's teaching us here something about in the spiritual realm. When you're, we're, we are unaware of a lot of things, and it's not an innocent type of ignorance. I mean, sometimes you do something and 
it's a month later that you think back and realize and you say, boy, I, I did wrong in that. And it didn't bother you at the time, maybe at all, or maybe just a little below the surface of consciousness there, you had a little bit of a feeling that something wasn't right. Sometimes there's all degrees of this. But it, see, it, it's not an innocent type of ignorance. It's something where it's a result of our fallen condition. And as we grow, God's able to show us more. And you sometimes He really opens your eyes and you think, wow, have I been like that all along? And God didn't put me in hell or people didn't shoot me or something? I mean, it's because your eyes are being opened more and more as a Christian to the needs in your own life even. Now, those things are sins. The Bible says that even though they were not willfully. Here's the guy right here. Did this guy willfully transgress a known law? It's just the opposite. He said he didn't know. He, didn't know. he was surely guilty, he says. And he needs to be forgiven and he needs the blood. Now, I'll just give you the other reference. I won't read it, but Psalm 50, or Numbers 15, 22 to 31, a similar passage. And then Psalm 139. Verses 23 and 24, let me read that to you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, why would you ask God to search your heart? Because you know you can't search your own heart. You don't, you don't see. I mean, most of the things that are the big problems in our lives, we don't see. And that's why it's so important that we listen to what other people tell us. I mean, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. And then Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13, who can discern his errors? Psalmist says that. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted from of great transgression. So he realizes he can't trust himself to search his own heart, so he asks God to do that. 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5, to I think quite an amazing passage. This is what Paul says. On my part, um, I'm sorry, 4, 3-5, to to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So Paul says, he says, I don't know of anything in my conscience. I don't know of anything that I'm doing wrong. But he says, that's not the bottom line. Only the Lord is the one who knows, really. And he had enough experiences of God showing him things in his life where he thought he was doing fine, and God showed him later on. He says, you know, you need, you need some growth in this area. You need to repent of some things here, you see. So the fact that you don't see anything wrong, it may just be a sign that you need to grow some. And again, that's why we need to listen to others and why we need to test things by the Word. A lot of times we don't feel like something's as bad as the Bible says it is, and it just means that we're blinded to it. And we haven't been brought into line with reality. Well, anyway, sin is much more than a willful transgression of a known law. In fact, most of the sins of the Christian life are sins of ignorance in some sense or sins of omission. We fail to tell people how much we love them. We fail to show the proper respect to someone in a situation. We may not even realize it at the time. We don't have the zeal and the fervor and the love and desire that we ought to have for prayer, for knowing the Lord. All those things are sin. And the more you grow, the more you see. 
So the Bible talks not only about sins of ignorance, but it talks about daily sins. Now, where does it do that? Well, Jesus, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And what is it? Give us this day our daily bread. And what did He teach every Christian disciple to pray daily? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Second Chronicles 6, 36 and 37. When they sin against thee, for there's no man who does not sin, and thou art angry with them, and so on. He just puts it in court sort of as, a, as, as an aside. There's no man who does not sin. I've known some very godly men in my life, but I've never known one that did not sin ever. I mean, even from our poor standard. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. That's amazing that Pelagius, back in the days of Augustine, would teach that there were a bunch of people who had never sinned in their whole life. It says right here, before Romans 3.23 was ever written, it says that there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Now, those things being true, we know ahead of time that any kind of perfectionist teaching is going to be harmful to everyone concerned. And that is, in fact, the case. And I want to quote more from the experience of Ironside again because it's very instructive. To make a long story short, he literally wore himself to exhaustion trying to claim this experience. And... uh, of sinless perfection, and he finally ended up in a nursing home. There were a number of times that he uh, thought that he had it, and then he either lost it or he couldn't keep it. Or, I mean, he, he came to the conclusion that he didn't have it. But anyway, here he is a young man. I, I should have done the uh, addition on this. I don't know whether he would have probably would have been in his maybe early 20s. I don't know if he would have been that old yet. But he's in this nursing home, and it was called Beulah Home of Rest near Oakland. It was a Salvation Army nursing home. He says this, Now I began to see what a string of derelicts this holiness teaching left in its train. I could count scores of persons who had gone into utter infidelity because of it. They always gave the same reason, quote, I tried it all. I found it a failure, so I concluded the Bible teaching was all a delusion and religion was a mere matter of the emotions, unquote. Many more, and I knew several such intimately. And he says many scores of people fell away into infidelity, but he says many more, and I knew several such intimately, lapsed into insanity after floundering in the morass of this emotional religion for years. And people said that studying the Bible had driven them crazy. How little they knew that it was lack of Bible knowledge that was accountable for their wretched mental state. An absolutely unscriptural use of isolated passages of Scripture. People who profess conversion, whether real or not, the day will declare struggle for months, even years, to reach a state of sinlessness which never was reached. And at last they gave up in despair and sank back in many instances to the dead level of the world around them. I saw that it was the same with all the holiness denominations and the various bands, missions, and other movements that were continually breaking off from them. Now this is his statement. The standard set was the unattainable. The result was, sooner or later, utter discouragement, cunningly concealed hypocrisy, or an unconscious lowering of the standard to suit the experience reached. Now, historically, that is what has happened in the so-called holiness movements where some form of perfectionism is taught. At least five results that I want to mention here. First of all, those who are sensitive to the real nature of sin, often have nervous breakdowns. That's maybe what he meant here by saying insanity. I don't know. 
Secondly, those who are not sensitive to the real nature of sin are tempted to pride and or complacency because they have arrived. I mean, once you're sinlessly perfect, where is there to go? You know, I have need of nothing. I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And so pride or complacency are a big temptation or maybe inevitable since they're not actually sinlessly perfect. Thirdly, sin is excused. Now, in every one of these teachings, sin is all, the definition of sin is always lowered in every case. And so sin is excused and is called a mistake or something of that nature. I heard the testimony of one boy uh, in this movement. He said, do you know what it's like to have a dad who never sins? Well, what he's not saying his dad never sinned. He's saying his dad never admitted his sin. It's always a mistake. It's always something. You know, you've got an explanation for it because you've got to try to say how you're sinlessly perfect, but you've got something here you need to apologize for. And so sin is excused. Fourthly, sin is externalized. And this has been uh, the tendency in these movements down through the years. So sin is brought down to more in terms of externals. If, I mean, it's something you choose, you know, you don't do this. And and so it's things like sleeve length on dresses and whether or not you have a TV in your home and that type of thing. Usually you can spot people from holiness backgrounds in the grocery store right off the bat. It's just a fact. <clears throat> Fifthly, sins of omission are ignored. In other words, things like not studying the Bible enough, not knowing anything about church history. You know, sins of omission, ignorance, those things are ignored totally because the the very definition of sin, a willful transgression of a known law. Well, you know, the fact is that um, it, it can be sin if a pastor doesn't prepare a sermon enough and doesn't understand the issues and doesn't read and study. You see, that's sin. But that's not a willful transgression going out and doing something evil that you intentionally do, see? So it's out of, that's not worried about. So there has been in historically this ignoring of sins of omission. Well, anyway, let me go back to the story. He says, in the rest home, I found about 14 officers broken in health seeking recuperation. I watched the ways and conversation of all most carefully, intending to confide in those who gave the best evidence of entire sanctification. He was still wanting help. There were some choice souls among them and some arrogant hypocrites. But holiness in the absolute sense, I saw in none. He's talking about sinlessness. Some were very godly and devoted. Their conscientiousness I could not doubt. But those who talked the loudest were plainly the least spiritual. They seldom read their Bibles. They rarely conversed together of Christ. An air of carelessness pervaded the whole place. Some were positively quarrelsome and boorish. And this I could not reconcile with their profession of freedom from inbred sin. I attended the meetings held by the other workers I've mentioned. There, the best of them did not teach sinless perfection, while the manifestly carnal gloried in their experience of perfect love. Sick people testified to being healed by faith. It sounds like modern day, doesn't it? I mean, we, we had a situation of a guy that said, Thank the Lord with me. I've been healed. He had cancer. And a short time later, he was dead. It's just a lie. It's a the dream world. Sick people testified to being healed by faith, and sinning people declared they had the blessing of holiness. I was not helped but hindered by the inconsistency of it all. Now, he, he got more and more despondent, and this is what he says. Deliverance came at last in a most unexpected way. A lassie lieutenant, a woman some ten years my senior in age, was brought to the home from Rock Springs, Wyoming, Supposedly dying of consumption, tuberculosis. From the first, my heart went out to her in deep sympathy. To me, she was a martyr, laying down her life for a needy world. I was much in her company, observed her closely, 
and finally came to the conclusion that she was the only holy, sanctified person in that place. Imagine my surprise when a few weeks after her arrival, she with a companion came to me one evening and begged me to read to her, remarking, I hear you are always occupied with the things of the Lord, and I need your help. I, the one to help her, I was dumbfounded, knowing so well the plague of my own heart and being fully assured as to her perfection and holiness. At the very moment they entered my room, I was reading Byron's Child Herald, and I was supposed to be entirely devoted to the things of God. It struck me as weird and fantastic rather than, rather than as a solemn farce. All this comparing ourselves with ourselves only to be deluded every time. I hastily thrust the book to one side and wondered what to choose to read aloud. In God's providence, a pamphlet caught my attention which my mother had given me some years before. Now, she wasn't part of the whole thing, and he was praying for her to get sanctified. A pamphlet which my mother had given me some years before, but which I had dreaded to read lest it might upset me. So afraid had I been of anything that did not bear the army or holiness stamp. Moved by a sudden impulse, I drew it forth and said, I'll read this. It's not in accordance with our teaching, but it may be interesting anyway. Now he goes on and tells about that, and he says, I was startled after going over the first half of the book when Lieutenant Jay exclaimed, Oh, Captain, do you think that can possibly be true? If I could only believe that, I could die in peace. Astonished beyond measure, I asked, What? Do you mean to say that you could not die in peace as you are? You are justified and sanctified. You have an experience I've sought in vain for years. And are you troubled about dying? I'm miserable, she replied. And you mustn't say I'm sanctified. I cannot get it. I've struggled for years, but I've not reached it yet. This is why I wanted to speak to you, for I felt so sure you had it and could help me. We looked at each other in amazement. And as the pathos and yet ludicrousness of it all burst upon it, burst upon us, I laughed deliriously while she wept hysterically. Isn't that amazing? All those years of striving, wanting to be perfect and believing that they hadn't attained and knowing they hadn't attained it and believing that God had promised it. Then I remember exclaiming, Whatever is the matter with us all? Not one on earth denies himself more for Christ's sake than we. We suffer and starve and wear ourselves out in the endeavor to do the will of God. Yet after all, we have no lasting peace. Well, he goes on and tells how that they began to see that they began to search the Scriptures, realize that these things weren't true, and both of them were set free. And her health recovered, and she lived something like six more years and served the Lord. Now, I've gone to great lengths to read this just to show that wrong teaching hurts people. It, it, uh, it's not a little thing. We're talking about uh, worse agonies than what you can endure physically. And we saw last week from the other side in the things that Mason shared, that is the idea that the hearts of true Christians are still desperately wicked and that God looks upon Christians with hatred and disgust and thinks of them as vile and wretched sinners and that kind of thing, those things hurt people too. The idea that you have to live a life of defeat and misery. False teaching hurts no matter which side of the cliff you're about to fall off of. And that brings me to the second part of the message, and this is much, much shorter, but I've got to say something. I can't leave us here. A biblical view of sin is a lifesaver. The fact that Christians will never be sinlessly, absolutely perfect in this lifetime, that will save your life. But I'll tell you what else. A biblical view of the power of Christ is a lifesaver too. And what happens is many people see the pitfalls of this so-called holiness teaching or absolute Christian perfection, sinless perfection teaching, and um, 
they are very happy to react the other way and say, well, we're never going to be perfect. We're just wretched sinners. Don't listen to anybody that talks to you about any kind of experiences after you become a Christian. I mean, this is all there is. You don't have anything more. If somebody talks to you about victory in the Christian life, you know they're a heretic. Reject them. You know, get away from them. Um, All we're going to be is wretched sinners, and uh, Paul was too. Now, I've said many times over the last few weeks that that's a lie. Um, We talked today about how even our best works fall short of perfection and about how that we're not conscious of many things in our lives until we grow to a point where God can show them to us and lead us out of them. And all that is true. But that is not the situation in Romans 7. We're not talking about somebody that's bemoaning the fact that he fails to be Christ-like in areas that God hadn't revealed to him yet. That's not Romans 7. Romans 7 is a guy who knows point blank that something's wrong. And he's defeated by it, and he's wretched in his defeat. Now that's different. We're talking in Romans 7 about conscious defeat by consciously, clearly known sin. And wretched defeat. This man is consciously and habitually defeated by known sin in areas that God has revealed to him. And he knows they're wrong. Now, if you take the position that that's what a Christian has to face, you've denied a whole lot of the teaching of the New Testament. The real question is this. Do I have to live a defeated life? Do I have to go around with a defiled conscience because I'm practicing things that I know I shouldn't? That's a different question. Do I have to be defeated by the temptation that I'm facing right now? Here's a temptation to do evil, and I know that it's evil. Do I have to be defeated by that temptation? Or is there a way of escape? Does sin have dominion over me as a Christian? You see, if you start talking about sinless perfection, if you start talking about Christian perfection, or even if you say perfect victory over all known sin, even known sin, even that you get into trouble because there's some things, like I said earlier, that are kind of just starting to become known to you and they're not real clear yet, but there you kind of feel a little bit of something about it. And you see there's sin there. And so I don't think we ought to even talk about perfect victory over all known sin. I don't think those are helpful categories to talk about because we've got to keep in our mind, we every one of us, I don't care how holy a man is, He's got limitless opportunities for growth. And there's never anybody that ever comes to a point of arriving. And the more you get in the Christian life and the more victory that you have, the more humble you are and able to say, you know, I and, and the men that I know, even men from these holiness backgrounds that really do know God, when you start talking to them, they don't want to claim anything for themselves. In fact, even John Wesley didn't. I mean, he'd say, now there are others that, you know, no. It's like, when you really have something real, it makes you, just what it says, more like Christ. More humble. And as Christians, we realize that there's all kinds of room for growth. And so, we're not talking about any kind of sinlessness. We're not talking about perfect victory over all known sin and any, any kinds of statements like that. But, to say that you have a sin in front of you that you know clearly is sin and that you have to be defeated by it is a false teaching. Let me just remind you of the verses and then we'll close. This is Ezekiel 36, 25-27. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now that sounds like victory to me. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, 
that He might redeem us from every lawless deed. Now you say, well, that just legally, you know, justifies you. No, He goes on and explains it. He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. See that? Talking, it's a promise there. Redeem me from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession. So, in my own life, if I've come up against something and I think, and the devil tells you, well, you've gone, you've gone about as far as you're going to go in the Christian life, you're not going to get victory over this. You know that's a lie. He gave Himself to purify us from every evil deed and to purify us for Himself to be zealous for good deeds. The opposite. Galatians 5.16, Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. 1 Corinthians 10.13, There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape so that you might be able to bear it. Now that's a promise. That means that when the devil tells you, you're coming up against something, the devil tells you all, you know, you can't get victory over that. That's a lie. God will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able Romans 6, 6 and 7, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Romans six twelve, let not sin reign in your mortal body. You don't have to. That you should obey its lust. You don't have to. Romans 8.13, if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. You're able to do that as a Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 6.14, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Now, all those are promises. Now, think about this. We've talked about this deeper understanding, or more, um, that's not really the right way to say it, but Fuller understanding, fuller definition or explanation of what sin is. But there's many, many places in the Bible where it takes sin more on its surface evaluation. Now, let me give you an example. In 1 John, he says, These things I've written to you that you don't sin. Well, come on, John. We're all sinning daily in thought, word, and deed. We're doing everything. We're falling short of the glory of God all the time. No, he's talking about the very thing that Wesley was talking about. Something you know is wrong. He says, I've written this to you that you don't do it. Now, he says, if any man sins, he doesn't say when we sin, because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God all the time. No, he says, if any man sins, that is, you know that you've done something wrong. If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only. So, You see the idea of sin there? He that is born of God does not commit sin. He doesn't practice sin because God's seed remains in him and he cannot sin. That's talking about these things that I know are wrong. And it's very close to Wesley's idea. And so there's both aspects of this. And the Christian life, I see God's not holding me accountable for things that haven't been revealed to me yet. And the, the thing that, that we are accountable for is that there would not be any conscious cloud between me and God that I'm doing something that defiles my conscience that I know is wrong. That's what we are accountable for. And it's possible to live, and it's expected that we live, in a realm where not where you never ever sin again type of thing, but in a realm where you're instead of being under, you're over. You're above. I I never did learn to ski. I never I, I tried it one time when I was a kid. I don't know how old I was, maybe sixth grade or something, or younger. But I learned enough about skiing to know this: there's a difference between between being under the water and being on top of the water. I mean, you know, you get up on top of the water. That doesn't mean you'll never fall down again. But there's a whole world of difference being on top than there is when you're starting out and you're plowing through the water. Now, I don't 
I'm not able to give an exact answer to this question, what do we mean victory? But I know this much, it's possible for you as a Christian to be on top of the water instead of under the water. And you can and you can walk in areas, things, something you're struggling with, you can be free from that. And it may be a thing where you come to God as a Christian and you cry out to Him and you say, Oh Lord, set me free. And you believe the truth of what His Word says and lo and behold, you're on top of the water now. And it doesn't mean you'll never fail again. It doesn't mean you'll never sin again in that area. But it means that, that something has happened. Now, there have been times in my own life where I went forward <clears throat> at a meeting uh, uh, praying that God would deliver me from something, and I can't explain what happened, but I know something. my whole life was different from then on. It was never the same. Now, see, the problem with a lot of these things that we've looked at in the Wesleyan view of sanctification and so on, the problem is not... I mean, some of these people, God did wonderful things for them. In one stroke, I mean, and he does do that sometimes. The problem is, is that the devil comes in. He doesn't like that. He doesn't like anybody to have joy and victory and peace. And so he comes in and gets it twisted around in their thinking to where they're talking about Christian perfection, and then the whole thing goes stale. It's like if he can't get you one way, he'll get you the other way. And and the answer is to come back to what the Bible says. And it teaches both aspects. And so, but, you know, you, you can be free. You really can. And there's no reason for you not to be. And the answer is to come to God and ask Him to open your eyes to the possibilities of grace, to repent thoroughly, to ask for cleansing, and to believe that you have been crucified with Christ so that sin cannot reign over you anymore. Believe the truth. Consider the reality to be true. Reckon. That means just conclude. Come to the conclusion that this is really true. That sin cannot rule over you anymore. And believe and conclude and, and, and take a stand on the fact that you've been crucified with Christ and you have died to sin. Consider yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. And it is a step of faith. It's trusting the truth of what God has said. I remember years ago when I was just out of college, I had memorized that verse, 1 Corinthians 10.13, about no temptation has taken you. And I, you know, I'd have these thoughts. I think, well, if I could believe that, you know, that would change my life. Sometimes you, you know, there's a point in there somewhere where you quit saying, if I could believe that, which is basically saying God's a liar. And you start saying, wow, God's, this is true. It is true that the next thing that I face, the next temptation I face, God is faithful. He will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I'm able, but He will make a way of escape. There will be a way of escape there. That's the reality. And you quit saying, if I could believe this and just rejoice in the reality of it, 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 it's a transforming thing. That's what Mason was talking about last week, about fighting the good fight of faith. It's not struggling the miserable struggle of unbelief. We're talking about believing, having your mind renewed to see what's true. Not talking about pretending anything. You remember when Paul says we've died to sin, he's not saying pretend that sin doesn't affect you anymore. That's not what it means to die to it. It means that we've passed out of that realm. We're in a new realm now. That's really true that we've passed out of that realm. It's really true that it's not master over us anymore. So he's not asking you to pretend something that isn't true or that you know isn't true. He's asking you to accept something that is, in fact, the reality. And once you realize, and wait a minute now, I don't have to be defeated anymore by this and to believe what God has said. And that's what He means by be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, amen. Lord willing, next time we'll try to gather up the loose ends and... uh,
and then go on into chapter 8. We're going to pass over into chapter 8. <laughs> Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, we marvel at the, the things that You have said are true of every Christian that we've died to sin. We've passed out of that realm. We've died to law. We're alive unto God. I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. You said that we've died to this old realm and have been released from it. We've been released from the law so that now we serve in newness of the Holy Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Help us, Lord. Help us to prove these things, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds even this week and to prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God in our daily walk. Help us, Lord. We look to You in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's be dismissed.